Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. morning on this 22nd day of April 2021 with a really good news story that I don't want anyone to miss. More than a million people, more than a million people in response to one event on Good Friday made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. More than 1.3 million people. Here's the here's the pull quote from the Christian Post article that I'm reading from. The, uh, the article is headlined, Why One Million People Decided to Change Their Religion in Two Hours. Uh, it is a story about a broadcast event that took place on Good Friday, spearheaded by our friends over at Pulse. And so you, um, you recognize the name uh, Nick Hall, the founder of Pulse, um, and um, Pulse based right there in the Twin Cities. And on Good Friday... Something like 200 million people, just get that number in mind for just a moment, that on Good Friday, somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 million people watched Pulse's worldwide Good Friday broadcast. And more than 1.3 million of those people have uh, already responded to the gospel, indicating their desire to follow Jesus. That's, that's more than a million people. Um. I mean, that's a lot more than a million people calling or texting in to one of the response centers that was open live during during the event. Um, and some 26,000 churches um, have have now responded to these one point three million individuals who've made a first time profession of Jesus. Um, so. One of the call centers is in India. They have um, they have connected tens of thousands of brand new believers there to churches in that country. Um, I, I just want you to just pause for a moment and consider the greatness and the goodness of God, um, the way that He is using technology in this generation for all of the ills of the internet, for all of the challenges that we face in terms of social media um, and. Uh, and, and all kinds of other difficulties that we raise in in terms of technology. I just want you to consider that 200 million people had access to the gospel on Good Friday, and 1.3 million of them have already positively responded to the gospel. Uh, let us pause and give thanks to God for our friend Nick Hall, our brother Nick Hall, Pulse, uh, that ministry. Um, the people who participated in making this Good Friday event happen, the people who uh, God touched in terms of their response, all of the volunteers who staffed all those call centers around the world to be able to talk to people in their heart language um, and and be able to help them um, find uh, and connect with a church that said, you know what, we're ready to receive new believers. We know how to walk a new believer 
um, from the point of decision into the faith and actively disciple them in Jesus Christ, no matter what their background, no matter their um, their religion of origin, um, on and on and on. Is your church prepared in that way? Are you prepared in that way? God is sending forth the Spirit in this generation in miraculous ways. And the church here in the United States of America, I would argue, is less prepared, less prepared to receive and respond to new believers. Um, We're less prepared than we need to be. We've been praying for revival. Are we actually ready in our churches to receive brand new baby believers who have no background in the Bible, no background in the faith? They've never set foot in a church. What are they going to experience when they walk into yours? And are we ready to walk them from that point of decision into maturity, into faithful service, that they would be prepared um, to, to live out their calling to lead lives worthy of the gospel of Christ? I just think I, I, we got to get ready. Um, God, is, God is touching hearts and minds around the world and bringing people to Jesus. And if we're going to be the Jesus people in this generation who are the family of faith, then we better get ready to receive the flood of new believers that God is sending our way. All right, Julie Roys um, is an investigative reporter, uh, and her subject matter is, you know, what's going on in the church and uh, and in Christianity across the country. She delivers something called the Roys Report, and we're going to check in with her. You can find her at julieroys.com, but she's joining me next right here on Mornings with Carmen. She uh, delivers something called the Roy's Report. You can find her and what we're going to talk about today at com. Julie, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Carmen. Great to be with you. Thanks for having it's, me. Absolutely. it's. Um, I love checking in with you. Um, I actually enjoy, uh, I mean, you don't know this, right? So, like, I'm one of those people that gets the Roy's Report and reads it, and then I should reach out and say, hey, thanks for that. Um, so, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So I wanted to um, I wanted to have you share with our listeners um, a story that you posted on the 19th. Christian millionaire in Kenya gives up everything to save orphans. Um, So Jackson Elliott is uh, is is in the byline here. But go ahead and Mm -hmm. tell us this story. Yeah. And Jackson is someone who just came on recently with the Roy's report. So I'm really glad to have another reporter on with us. And he did this great story about uh, kind of a riches to rags story, the downward mobility that we uh, practice as Christians sometimes and God calls us to do. So here's this guy uh, grew up on the streets in Kenya. He was an orphan. And just through hard work, the man was able his name's Charles, Charles Mully. He was able to get a taxi cab company that did famously well, and he ends up a millionaire. And he's 40 years old one day, and he he comes. He's in the streets of Kenya, and some orphans come up to him and want him to pay them protection money to watch his car, and he refuses. And lo and behold, he leaves. He comes back, and his car is no longer there. So they stole it. And he was upset about that, but then he went to sleep, wakes up the next morning, and he can't get this off his mind about these orphans because he recalls what it was like to be an orphan. And God just starts bothering him and working on his heart. And within like a couple of days, he sold his entire business 
and started bringing all of these orphans into his home. And you can imagine he already has uh, kids of his own, a wife of his own, who are used to a certain lifestyle. And now all these orphans are coming into his home, some of them not the most well-behaved. And it created a lot of chaos, which his family had to work through. But after they worked through that and and he began, you know, making uh, he he bought some buildings where then they could actually uh, start orphanages. And now he's got the largest network of orphanages with nearly 3000 children in them all across uh, the country of Kenya. They have one in Tanzania now. And over the past 20 years or so. 25,000 kids have come through these orphanages. And some of them uh, that Jackson talked to, uh, one's a lawyer now, uh, another one's a doctor. I mean, they're they're entering professional fields. They're, they're still considered, though, this is what's kind of cool, they're still considered part of the Mully family, and they still call mm-hmm. Charles Mully dad. And it's just really neat how he has this huge extended family and God's using him and his huge heart for these orphan kids to really make a difference in Kenya. So a really heartwarming story um, that we were able to report on. Okay. So see, this is one of those stories where as I read through it, I thought to myself, I now have a karate team um, to <laughs> right. to root for in the Olympics because um, a, a Moli children's family karate team uh, is representing Kenya um, in the Olympics. I loved this part of the story. MCF <laughs> provides the children in the ministry's care with a K-12 education, a college program of, and vocational training. He pays to put them through national colleges. Um, and, you know, and as you have noted, uh, you know, several of them have, um, you know, have risen to really prominent uh, positions. And this is this is such a redemptive story. And so I just I really appreciated your um, your highlighting it at julieroys.com, and I wanted people to be able to find it as well and to connect with MCF if they're interested in doing so. Um, Julie, let's take a very, very brief break. When we come back, we're going to pivot to um, maybe what I consider sort of your sweet spot, which is investigative reporting here um, sort of on Christian storylines here in the United States. And I want to I lead off with the conference that you've reported on in Tulsa because, um, well, I was certainly intrigued. So that's up next uh, here on Mornings with Carmen. Julie Royce and I will be right back. Continue my conversation with Julie Royce from the Royce Report. You can find her at julieroys, R-O-Y-S, dot com. All right, Julie, so um, this conference that took place in Tulsa that you have reported on, conference mixes worship, QAnon, and allegations of COVID-19 fear porn. Um, I got to tell you, that uh, that was clickbait for me. Uh, and so I clicked on that. Again, the byline here is Jackson Elliott. But um, tell us what uh, tell us what you all are, well, what you learned, what, what, what happened, what's this all about? First of all, 4,000 people packed in anywhere right now is a lot of people. It's a lot of people, and it may have been more than that. I mean, we went with a conservative estimate, but supposedly 4,200 people could fit inside uh, this auditorium at Rima Bible College, which is near Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, but they said, organizers said they had over 50,000 people who asked for tickets, and this was also streamed online. The videos from the event were posted online, and then they were mostly, most of them pulled. Um because I think there was some pretty crazy stuff said uh, at this conference. Some of it, you know, would be in line with uh, folks who 
who feel that the government has gone overboard with its COVID restrictions, you know, and that's a that's a valid position. I think there's there's a lot of Christians who are on both sides of that issue, um, but a lot feeling like the government's overreached in what it's done and some of its restrictions. At the same time, how many believe that, you know, we should pack an auditorium? Uh, and there are a lot of, you know, I saw the video of it. There are some elderly people in there, and I guess if, if they're going to take that risk, but again, um, in the midst of COVID that, you know, some people may feel that was unwise. But I think the bigger thing that really got people <laughs> interested in this conference, and again, it was streamed online. And so there were people snagging uh, excerpts of it and posting on social media. But we had people like Lynn Wood, who was a former um, uh, Trump lawyer, cheering the audience and telling them that they that he believed in QAnon. If you don't know what QAnon is, you know, it's this conspiracy theory contending that these elites who are pedophiles and Satan worshipers are working to destroy America. And he got up there and just basically said, Q is truth. And this is mostly, you know, Carmen, a debunked theory. You know, they had this whole thing about there was this pizza restaurant that supposedly had a, a pedophile ring working out of the basement of it. And some guy went in with a gun and found there was no basement there. Um, so it, it's really, it was, it, that part was a little, um, eyebrow raising. Uh, but Lynn Wood also said things like, you know, anybody involved in this, we need to send them to jail, put them in front of a firing squad. They're committing acts of against humanity. And again, this is whipping people up about something that, uh, when it comes to the facts of QAnon are, are, are pretty thin. Um, so I think that was pretty controversial. They also, uh, we're calling Dr. Anthony Fauci a criminal. And again, he's a controversial figure. People have different views on him, but calling him a criminal and saying some of these things. And then there was some guy that got up and had sort of a pseudoscientific theory about how we're all connected through molecules and how social media is disrupting that and our cell phones are disrupting that. So we can't work together as a group uh, against, you know, these cabals that are trying to to undo us. So it, it was, it was a little bit of weirdness at the same time, you know, then you hear Christian worship and then they're blowing shofars and it, it was, I don't know, it was a little crazy. So, you know, Julie and I highlight these things for those of you who are listening and you're saying to yourself, you know, on any given day of the week, you could probably go and find a conference in America where there's a conflation of uh, patriotism or patriotic storylines and or uh, gospel centered people and I think that, Julie, one of the reasons that I wanted you to talk about this is because I think we have to be really discerning today. Um, if something is advertised in a particular way, that may not be what we're getting when we show up. Um, and we have to have a spirit of discernment. And just because there's a large group of people gathered together cheering for something doesn't necessarily mean um, that my uh, – in fact, that's probably an occasion where my filter needs to be stronger not, uh, you know, I, I need to not loosen my filter in those environments. And so, um, you know, I think that what I want to say to listeners today is you may receive this kind of invitation via an email or announcement on social media. And it's important to be discerning. It's really important to be discerning in terms of what's going on out there in the world today. Um, and, you know, and check the content as as an event is going along. Do I agree with this? What do I not agree with? Take some notes. Um, and then, you know, and then talk to your pastor about it. Say, hey, I went to this event. I was a little confused by these things. What do you think is going on here? Like, I think we need to um, include one another in these conversations, not 
silo ourselves further and further off um, from the conversations that are happening in our culture. There's a lot of folks engaged um, in in the kinds of events that Julie's talking about here. All right, Julie, in the we got a couple of minutes left here, and I want you to we have not talked about developments in the case at Liberty University, and you have covered that uh, as well at julieroys.com. So give us an update in terms of what's happening at Liberty. Well, some background for folks who aren't following it all that closely. In in August, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., who was president there for a very, very long time, the son of the founder, Jerry Falwell Sr., uh, it came out that he was involved in this awful sexual scandal with his wife and this uh, former business partner, Giancarlo Granda, and apparently was some sort of, you know, situation where he had a voyeuristic role in the affair that Becky had with this man. I mean, really kind of unbelievably gross stuff, especially involving the president of a Christian university. Um, There also were scandals with financial, you know, misdealing and these these, um, contracts to friends and relatives. And so in the midst of all this, he resigned twice. He resigned, then unresigned, then resigned again uh, in August. But then it comes out days after that he's got this $10.5 million golden parachute that he's negotiated with the school. A couple months later, October, uh, Jerry Falwell sues the school for defamation, saying what they said about him was false. Um, Kind of a hard case to make because there's a lot of evidence that it was true. And he ended up uh, dropping that lawsuit. Well, now Liberty has just sued Jerry Falwell Jr., trying to claw back that golden parachute. And they're saying, hey, when you had this awful relationship going on with Giancarlo Granda, you were working kind of a conspiracy to keep that relationship from us, keep these racy photos of your wife out of the public eye. You were doing all of these things behind the scenes while with us you were meeting and negotiating a raise for yourself. And then this golden parachute that you ended up getting of $10 million we think you didn't act in good faith, and now we want that $10 million back. And I think there's a lot of people who have been following this who are just enraged that the board gave him that kind of golden parachute when he has acted so uh, completely inappropriately and a complete violation of everything that Liberty stands for. And so now this case is moving forward, and we'll, we'll have to see, and we'll be following it uh, at the Roy's report for sure. All right, Julie Roy's, thank you um so much. It's um uh, you know, I appreciate the uh, the investigative pressure um that you apply and I know that you um do difficult work and I know that you do mm-hmm. work that um not everybody like right, nobody wants the light shined on them when there's something uh you know, less than um less than reflective, positively reflective of the gospel, right? No, mm-hmm. Nobody wants that. And yet it's it's important. And so thank you so much um, for doing what you do. We have uh, we have listener uh, Kathy uh, who says, oh, thank you for having Julie on your show. I always count on her faithful reporting. So there you go. Mm. You got it. Mm. You got I mean, I'm sure you have lots of fans who are listening right now, but there's at least one who chose to chime in. So thanks, Kathy, for giving Julie that positive affirmation this morning. And Julie, thanks for jumping on on short notice. Um, I really genuinely appreciate it. Happy to do it and always happy to be on with you, Carmen. Love your work. And I really appreciate you and the light that you bring uh, to the radio wave. So thank you. You're so kind. You're so kind. Um, all right. That's Julie Roy's. Um, go check out what she's doing at com. We'll be right back. All right. I got a quick headline here for you before we jump into a conversation with Mindy Bells from World Magazine. 
So Simon & Schuster, you will remember, announced um, in early April that it was going to publish an autobiography and another book by Vice President Mike Pence. Maybe it will not surprise you that there was then an uh, employee-led petition arguing that Simon & Schuster would be making money off of, quote, a central figure of a presidency that advocated for, I'm not going to read all the isms and, and phobias that are listed there, but I'll conclude with this. Uh, they, they say that uh, Mike Pence is a person who denies the bodily autonomy of pregnant, pregnant people. So that would, gives you a sense of what the employees are arguing um, there uh, about and for. Simon & Schuster, uh, the, the CEO, has stood up to those threats. And, um, and Jonathan Karp has rejected that pressure from those employees. And he said, you know, no, what, we're going to proceed with this, urging employees to embrace diversity of thought in the publishing world. So that's, um, that's a good news headline in, in the publishing world today. And I just wanted to commend Simon & Schuster for that decision. Ukraine on Wednesday is urging its Western allies um, to be prepared to step in as, uh, as Russia continues uh, applying pressure there on the border. The Ukrainian President Zelensky on Tuesday night warned his citizens that the country would, quote, stand to the last man in the event of war with Russia. Tensions are continuing to build along the border between the two nations. And Mindy Bells joins us next to talk about that and other international headlines. We'll be right back. You wouldn't spend all day in the sun without putting on some sunscreen, right? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. You're taking preventive measures now, so serious skin damage doesn't happen later. Well, for parents of teens, that idea needs to translate to your marriage. I work with a lot of moms and dads who have an out-of-control teen at home, and couples who don't prepare for the struggle often suffer a lot of damage in their marriage. Parents with kids approaching the teen years would be wise to prepare ahead of time. Get on the same page as your spouse and make sure the foundations are strong. It's like applying sunscreen. You can't see it, but your investment today could save your marriage tomorrow. Mark Gregston has more helpful resources for you at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Mindy Bells from World Magazine. Uh, Mindy, welcome back. Hi, Carmen. Oh, it's always good to talk with you. Um, I'm going to let you bring us up to date. I mean, Russia, the Russia headlines are so many, um, but let's start with Ukraine and then let's talk about, um, you know, sort of the back and forth diplomatic conversations um, in relationship to the solar winds um, uh, scandal, sanctioning, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, the situation we think keep, can't escalate more, and then it escalates more. And so um, you've had these incredible protests of uh, uh, the imprisonment of um, Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader. We've all been following that drama, his seemingly just offering himself as a sacrifice for the sake of of the people of Russia um, rising up against the Putin, Putin regime. But at the same time, uh, you know, Putin is not standing still, and he has vowed retaliation 
against the West. Um, if if anyone tries, and obviously he means primarily the United States, but and NATO, if anyone tries to take steps against um, Russia, and all of this playing out with, as you say, the situation with Ukraine, with troops massing there at the border. If you remember, um, about five years ago, there was uh, an invasion there. And we've actually had Russian troops inside of Ukraine there at the eastern border ever since. The world kind of looked away from it and just kind of let Putin have sort of a, a, a balance there at the border that, that really has, has been detrimental, devastating to those communities. And now he seems like he's preparing to do, you know, what people in Ukraine have feared, which would be just a, a full-on invasion that would— um, that would find them completely unprepared because we do not have, you know, for instance, you would expect that NATO would have in some way stepped up um, seeing a, this as a threat. And that's never happened. So if uh, if folks were just to Google headlines related to Russia this morning, they're going to see everything from um, <laughs> Russia's uh, threat to abandon the International Space Station and build its own, launch its own right. international, right? I mean, like, and um, and that Russia is now holding major military drills in, in Crimea. Um, I, I think that there, you know, anytime that there is any kind of vacuum around the world in terms of, um, well, frankly, U.S. power and influence, um, there are those who will press into those spaces and places. It feels like that is, at least in part, what is going on here. So let's talk about um, the diplomatic relationship um, between the United States and Russia. Um, there, you know, there's, there's, there are sanctions in place. Talk about those, and then there are um, sort of counter sanctions from from the Russian side. Well, interestingly, um, the <laughs> one of the really interesting features, I think, about all this from the U.S. side is that the American ambassador to Russia um, left in, was left in place. I mean, that is a huge diplomatic post. And when Joe Biden became president, he left in place um, the, the um, ambassador from the Trump administration, John Sullivan. And John Sullivan has been a really important player in all of this. He was called home to Washington in the midst of this. We've had, as you say, we've had sanctions in place that I would just describe as sort of a, almost a balance of sanctions that the U.S. has enacted so that Russia responds. But, you know, I, I think what is a little bit frustrating about all of this is that the United States is dealing with Russia as if it were the Cold War partner, I'll say, mm. of, of, um, you know, 40 years ago. And that's not the case. Russia is no longer a superpower. And yet we continue to contend. I mean, from a military standpoint, from a standpoint of, um, of its projection of power, you have, you have Russia involved in Syria. Russia is involved in Ukraine and at Crimea, as you mentioned. Um, but it is no longer this world superpower. And yet we continue to deal with them as though they are. Because they have a nuclear stockpile, that does make them a threat. And it, and it raises things to a different level. But I, I, I feel that there's this, we can't seem to escape dealing with them as like our, our number one enemy, when in fact, um, their economy, 
their military projection does not suggest that that's who, that's what they are any longer. So, Mindy, um, if you had to put your eyes on um, America's most significant global nemesis, I'll just frame it that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Um, where would your eyes be? Well, and I I want to be clear that I'm not trying to minimize the threat that Russia poses. No, I think no, it is I a get re- that. Regional threat. I think is regional threat. And um, but I mean, obviously, all eyes have been fixed on China, and China mm-hmm. is certainly the rising threat because of its the way that its economy has grown um, over the last decade, because of the way it has been aggressive in <clears throat> in both. Um, uh, committing itself to a police state that is that is very 21st century. You know, the technology and all the things that have gone into the oppression of Uyghurs that we've talked about and other groups inside China is frightening. And, um, and so for all of those reasons, you, you see China sort of moving into this place. And China is definitely projecting power into the Pacific. And into the region generally, willing to confront India, willing to confront um, others there in the, in the region. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I, I guess I want to back up and say I'm not saying that Russia is not a threat we need to contend with, but I think that we, we have not pivoted in the way that we've tried to pivot and recognize China as the 21st century threat that it is. We still are dealing with Russia kind of as a 20th century threat. And um, and I think for that reason, you know, we didn't really talk about the the space station aspect. That becomes really interesting um, because because Russia has never used that kind of leverage with the United States before. That has been like the one place where the U.S. and Russia have had this cooperative spirit um, over the last, say, two decades, I believe. And um, and and now they're even willing to bring that into the tension and um, that also represents a direct threat to U.S. ambitions in space. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. so suddenly we find that that is a place where we're vulnerable because we have relied on Russia as a launching pad for the space station, launching pad for the missions that have been going to supply the space station and that sort of thing. So that is particularly, I think, something that we're going to want to watch. Obviously, all of this playing against the backdrop of what happens to Alexei Navalny. He's been on a hunger strike. He's been reported near death. He seems willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of bringing change in Russia. And that's something you can't say that outside powers are doing. We have not invested in this um, this relationship and in this tension, I would say, um, in, in, in ways that have been dedicated and, and uh, more pointed. And, we're, and now we're going to have to. We simply can't avoid the destabilizing that's happening as a result of that. And we didn't so, even talk about COVID, Carmen. <laughs> in relationship to Russia? Yeah, well, yeah, because, you know, sort of the, the rampant um, spread of COVID in Russia um, and in the, in the way that that has been, um, you know, from time to time covered up, there have been huge issues. I mean, that's just an internal factor. You, you put that together with the unrest, and I, I, I feel like Russia is much more of a destabilized place. Putin projects a, uh, an image of being in control and wanting to maintain control, but I think Russia is very destabilized right now.
All right. Well, let's take a very brief break. Uh, Mindy, when we come back, let's talk about um, um, Jimmy Lai in in China. Um, and then let's um, I'd, I'd love for you to reflect on the risk to Christians as the United States completely withdraws from Afghanistan. If, in fact, President Biden follows through mm-hmm. on his commitment to do so. Sure. This conversation's mm-hmm. up next. I'm talking with Mindy Bells from uh, World Magazine. You can uh, you can find her. Um, I'm, I'll give you the exact website in just a minute because I don't have it up in front of me. All right, we'll be right back. It's like the prize, sunrise, waiting on the other side of the darkest night. Don't ever lose hope. All right, there's tons of ways to get there, but the easiest one is World Mag, worldmag.com. Uh, there you can find Mindy Bells and you all the things it. that she's writing along with her colleagues. Um, let's pivot our attention to China and particularly bring into focus our Christian brother, Jimmy Lai. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy Lai is a is a billionaire and he's also a Roman Catholic. Um, and he has been at the forefront of the Hong Kong protest movement, but but operating more from, I would say, an organizational standpoint. And then on Friday, um, the the now China-run authorities in Hong Kong um, sentenced him to 14 months in prison, kind of uh, an unheard of. Um, it, you know, these, these Hong Kong's wealthy leaders have been somewhat insulated from the crackdown that has been happening there simply because of, of what they represent and because they are global financial uh, kingpins. And, and now we're seeing that, in fact, the government is just is is seemingly has changed and is going after them. So um, I think there's a there's a parallel here to to Alexei Navalny in Moscow, and and that is just simply that Jimmy Lai has he's a British citizen. He had every opportunity to flee Hong Kong as the situation has become worse and worse there, and he stayed because it, he's he's talked poignantly about how it is it it is where he made his fortune. It is where um, his his life has been has been centered, and uh, it's a place that he loves. And so he's, he's really sort of courageously um, expressing his commitment to not only the idea of democracy, but the reality of of the place uh, as well by staying. And that is what's gotten him thrown into a maximum security cell. Yeah, we we need to be praying. Um ardently for him um, and those related to him. I mean, the one of the things I think we're all aware of about China is that when when the focus of attention is on you, it then also um, a bad light is then cast upon those who are closest to you. And so um, I'm not I'm not mm-hmm. foolish enough to imagine that his that his family, his friends, his, his colleagues are not also under a tremendous amount of scrutiny in the midst of this, which which makes his time even harder because people can't come to his aid. I mean, it's just. Right. And I, I think that this case will highlight something that's kind of been under the news radar throughout the demonstrations and then the crackdown in Hong Kong. And that is not only is Hong Kong just, um, has it been sort of the seat of, of free enterprise and in business and finance in Asia it also is has been the seat of the spread of Christianity in Asia. I mean, in, in over the last few decades, it's it's where um, 
It's where a number of mission agencies and churches have based their operations, and they have benefited from people like Jimmy Lai, who, as we know, must uh, support those kinds of efforts. And so the, the crackdown there has just put an end to Hong Kong as that sort of bastion of Christian enterprise, I'll put it. And um, that's something that we, we're going to see the effects of that moving forward. We're going to see not only just specifically in China, specifically in Hong Kong, but throughout that Asia region, how, how difficult it is for people to recover and refocus their mission activities um, and um, programs there. I'm reading one quote from the Christian Science Monitor. Um, This is East Asia Bureau head for Reporters Without Borders saying, Jimmy Lai has become the symbol of Hong Kong's uh, press freedom. The Chinese regime has decided to take that away, sending a message to all media professionals that you are not immune. You cannot publish information the Chinese regime does not want to have published. Um, There is going to be a storyline here related to the lack of access to information and um, right. and I, I just think that we need to all be really soberly aware of that. Um, I want to talk about the um, uh, the anniversary of the Armenian genocide before um, before we run out of time. So remind us um, of what we are talking about when we're talking about April the 24th. Yes, April the 24th is Armenian <clears throat> Remembrance Day. Um, and it is it is a an anniversary celebrated by the Armenian community. I think it's really important to point out there are more Armenians living in the United States than living in Armenia. And one of the reasons for that is the Armenian genocide. That took place uh, during the World War One era. Historians differ, but it's kind of settled. I, I mean, there's a fascinating history that came out a year ago from two really highly esteemed Israeli um, historians who have access found access to the actual uh, Ottoman-era documents, the government that showed that the government actually had conspired, had organized the rounding up, the emptying of villages. Uh, and, it, and it's not only uh, Armenians, but also Assyrian Christians, Aramean Christians, Greek uh, Orthodox Christians. It was the most devastating pogrom, I will say, against Christians in the part of the world where where Christians have lived the longest. And so we can't underestimate historically how much um, how much of an effect it had on the church. And yet Turkey, modern Turkey, you know, Turkey having moved away from the Ottoman era, uh, has never moved away from by acknowledging um, that the genocide took place. And so I feel like in a way what this what would happen, um, there are multiple reports now quoting inside sources saying that um, President Biden will declare uh, that what happened in 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 the region was a genocide. And that's hugely significant because it just simply writes history. It it the United States, because of its strong relationship with Turkey, Turkey is a member member of NATO, has, you know, done everything, walked right up to the edge of calling it genocide, has protected the Armenians who fled and came and lived in this country. Um, but we have never actually just stated and made it policy to declare it a genocide. And I think that it will... Um, 
in the short term, it will make our relationships with Turkey quite difficult. I think they need to be made difficult. I think we have um, we have played way too soft with Turkey as it has invaded Syria, invaded Azerbaijan, as it has um, struck out against its Kurdish population, continued things against its Armenian population, really cracked down on Christians in um, within its borders. And so I think that this will begin to put really needed pressure on Turkey. But it's not going to be easy in the short term, but I think in the long term, it will just simply mean that we are dealing in a more honest way and that we are acknowledging and um, writing history uh, in a lot of ways. And, you know, if you think about it, if you think about what happened in in Nazi Germany and you move forward, I mean, this was uh, even further back in time, but you move forward, you, the idea that the United States would not have acknowledged that what happened in Nazi Germany was a Holocaust is uh, just unthinkable. And yet here we're talking about somewhere around uh, 1.5 million people and, and many more who were dislocated as a result of those, um, uh, as a result of that uh, program against them. Mm-hmm. Mindy, we got to leave it right there. Um, i I know that you have great concern about the risk to Christians uh, if and when the United States fully withdraws from Afghanistan. So let me direct people uh, to to that story posted at World Mag. Uh, that stands for World Magazine. You can also find them at World News Group, WNG.org. Um, Afghan, Afghanistan withdrawal puts Christians at risk. Um, Mindy Bells, thank you, as always, uh, for joining us. We appreciate your viewpoint um, and your perspective on what's going on around the world. Thanks for having me, Carmen. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right. What are you reading? Just a reminder today that what we take into ourselves is what is then there. Uh, when the world squeezes us and things come out of our mouths. And so uh, that that which comes out of our mouths is a reflection of what's in our minds and in our hearts. And so let's be sure that our minds are set today on Jesus Christ, that our hearts are filled to the brim with the word of God, his grace, his love, his all-sufficiency to meet the challenges of this day. God actually knows what's ahead of each and every one of us in the hours um, of the day, and we don't yet know. And so let's be, um, let's be people who are fully reliant upon him as we go forth into the world that he so loves, and let us do so in ways that honor Jesus. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.